Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights, Ether 1 through 5. Today's particular block of chapters are fascinating in, in many ways and at many levels. Initially, let's take a 30,000-foot overview of what's going on in chapters 1 through 5. So what we have is roughly 400 AD, it's sometime after 401 AD when Moroni's doing this work, sometime between 401 and 421 AD, so here he is, he then takes us back in time to something pre-2000 BC with uh, the story of, of the Jaredites leaving the Tower of Babel sometime millennia before uh, Moroni's writing, and he's going to tell you the initial part of their story in chapter 1, 2, 3, and then the brother of Jared coming down off the mountain with chapter 4, it ends. Then, in chapter 5, Moroni comes here and he looks forward to the Latter-day translator of the work that he's producing, Joseph Smith, in the 1820s, and he writes kind of a personal letter to him in chapter 5. You, you could label chapter 5, Dear Joseph, Love Moroni, because he's, he seems to be talking directly to him and then also, by extension, later on in that chapter to, to all of us. So if you look at the spread from more than 2,000 years before Christ to almost 2,000 years after Christ, today's block of scripture, it, it's covering a long period of time. So let's jump in to the beginning of the story with him going back in time to the Jaredites. And what you'll notice, you're so excited to, to jump into this new book, and uh, the very first thing he does is he gives you a long list of 30 names, 30 Jaredite names, beginning with Ether in verse 6, and then going all the way back in time to verse 32 until you get to Jared. Thirty names. Okay, now watch what happens. He gives you those names, and then the whole rest of the book of Ether is him telling you the story of each one of these people in reverse order. It's a chiasmus that we talked about before with, with Jack Welch here from Alma 36. The entire book is set up in this chiastic organizational structure using the names of these people, and the fascinating thing is he never skips a single name, never gets anything out of order, he gives you the names and then perfectly tells you their story in reverse order with a lot of emphasis up front on Jared and his brother. All right, so we pick up our story at the Great Tower, where the languages are confounded, 
and you you get this fun little interaction between Jared and his brother, beginning in verse 34 of chapter 1. Notice the description of the brother of Jared. He was a large and a mighty man, a man highly favored of the Lord. So Jared said unto him, Cry unto the Lord that he will not confound us, uh, that we may not understand our words. So Jared goes and asks the brother of Jared, who is highly favored of the Lord, to, to make this request. He makes the request, and the Lord says, okay, granted, your language isn't going to be confounded, at which point Jared comes back to him and says, okay, now, go and ask him if he'll do the same thing for our friends and family, if he won't confound their language. So the brother of Jared goes, and he does that, and the Lord responds, at which point Jared says, now, go and ask him, in, in verse 38, if he will drive us out of the land, and if he will, ask him where we will go, if he's got a different land prepared for us. By the way, at this point, this is the third time that Jared's come to his brother saying, go and ask God for this. Some of us kind of uh, chuckle about this and think to ourselves, you know, um, maybe the brother of Jared should sit down with, with Jared and say, brother, let me, let me teach you how to pray. Let me teach you how to ask God for things so you don't have to keep coming to me. And that's kind of a funny approach to it, but the reality is, is we don't know all of the reasons why this is happening this way, but the implication is that the brother of Jared is highly favored to the Lord in that he has a gift of the Spirit, a gift to be able to know how to talk with God and ask for things, and Jared recognizes that. And I don't see this as a negative thing, like he's, he's being spiritually dependent upon his brother. I think it's more he recognizes a gift of the Spirit, and he needs access to that gift of the Spirit, and he's asking for it, and it's being granted, and it's a beautiful, beautiful principle. Brothers and sisters, for us, there's nothing wrong with looking at your family and recognizing gifts that people have, or friends or loved ones or associates, recognizing what just seems to come inherently natural, naturally to them. They, they do things really well and then letting them shine. It doesn't mean we don't work on those elements ourselves. That's not part of this message. It's just the fact that the gifts of the Spirit are scattered among us and it's a blessing when we can figure out what those gifts are and tap into them appropriately, not selfishly, but, but appropriately. So, the Lord did hear, verse 40, the brother of Jared, and had compassion upon him and said, go gather thy flocks, and, and he gives him all of these instructions. So here we are at the great tower where the languages are being confounded, and we're going to go on a journey to the promised land for them that God has set apart, set aside, and he's going to take them from Babel, and they are going to have this long, drawn-out journey to the seashore, and then once they cross the sea, then they're going to finally get to the Promised Land. Now, before we go one step further in this, this story happened over 4,000 years ago. None of these people are still alive today, obviously, on, on the earth, but 
Brothers and sisters, if you look yet again, I love the fact that the Book of Mormon started with some families leaving a place that was becoming more wicked, and they go through a wilderness wandering, they come to the sea, they have to build uh, barges or a boat in order to cross that sea to come to the Promised Land, and now here you get a second witness of this kind of a journey. It's a very beautiful symbol for us who are living in a world that is increasingly feeling like the, the, the world at the time of Lehi in Jerusalem in 600 BC and the time of the brother of Jared and, and their families near the Tower of Babel. So it becomes this overlay for us as we go on our journey from a fallen earth through the course of life, through those wilderness wanderings, until we can hopefully arrive safely in, into heaven, symbolically. Now, every analogy breaks down eventually, and some break down sooner than others. So this is not a perfect symbol. So we're just going to learn what we can as we go through this process, watching Jared and their families coming through the wilderness as we then look at how that might, might apply to us. And you'll notice that we get some principles right out of the, the, the starting gate. Look at verse 42. After giving them instructions of what to do to begin their journey, look at 42. When thou hast done this, thou shalt go at the head of them down into the valley which is northward, and there will I meet thee, and I will go before thee into a land which is choice above all the lands of the earth. You'll notice all God uh, said to them, and by the way, I should probably diagram this differently because they were supposed to go northward and into a valley. That was their first step. Gather all of your flocks and your provisions, go here, and I will meet you there. Brothers and sisters, you'll notice there are lots and lots of uh, elements to this journey, but what did God give them? He gave them the point, well, I'll label it B instead of A, from B to C, this valley northward. Leave Babel, go there. That's all they got, instructions for how to get out of Babel and how to get into the valley northward. That's it. Sometimes when we embark on a marriage or on a mission or on a calling or on a profession, a career, or into an educational experience, we, we have a general idea of what's in front of us, but we don't know everything. We just get one step or the first few steps, and that's it. That's very much like our life. Thank heaven that God doesn't give us a big book for our whole life where we turn the page and it tells us what we're supposed to do every single day, every step of the way. There's something beautiful about agency where God gives you just enough to, to move forward, okay? So they get to the land, or to this valley northward, with the promise that, that God will meet them there and go before them. Then you turn to chapter 2. Uh, they 
gather all of these, these fowls and fishes and animals. Verse 3, they also did carry with them deseret, which is an interesting word in the Book of Mormon. Deseret or desheret is an Egyptian word. If you look this up, the king of Egypt, when they ruled Egypt, to symbolize that they were the ruler of Lower Egypt, where the uh, Nile River Delta is, they had a crown. It's called the Red Crown of Egypt. You'll notice there's a little curly antenna on that. And that antenna actually represents the honeybee. Again, industriousness of bringing order out of chaos from where the desert was red and, and vast, the water of life from the Nile comes and waters the ground and brings life and uh, fruition. What's interesting is the crown of Lower Egypt was called Desheret. It's a very ancient symbol. It's one of the most ancient symbols that comes out of Egypt. And so it's interesting, we have it here in the Book of Mormon. And what does it refer to? The honeybee. And similarly, you have this group that's following the lead of God to go establish a new civilization, and honeybees were often at the foundation. Wonderful. Now look at verse 4. It came to pass when they had come down into the valley of Nimrod, the Lord came down and talked with the brother of Jared, and he was in a cloud, and the brother of Jared saw him not. So you're going to notice throughout this book of Ether, by the way, there's this, this interesting um, play on the visibility of the Lord. So in the beginning parts, God is always in a cloud where the brother of Jared can't see him. When we get to chapter 3, that cloud, that veil is going to be broken open and he's going to be able to see him. And then from then on, Moroni is going to be encouraging us to seek that same Jesus, to seek through those clouds that separate us from, from being able to see God. Now, the Lord commanded him in verse 5 that they should go forth into the wilderness. You'll notice they're now fairly distant from Babel in this valley of Nimrod, which is to the north, but it's not good enough. It's great you've come this far, but you need to move on. So he tells them to move on. Look at verse 7, the Lord would not suffer that they should stop beyond the sea in the wilderness, but he would that they should come forth even unto the land of promise, which was choice above all other lands, which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. So it's this driving forward, uh, don't stop, don't wait. Uh, they finally come to verse uh, 13 after speaking about the significance of the promised land. Look at verse 13. Now I proceed with my record, for behold, it came to pass that the Lord did bring Jared and his brother, brethren forth even to that great sea which divideth the lands, and as they came to the sea, they pitched their tents, and they called the name of the place Moriancomer. And they dwelled in tents, and dwelled in tents upon the seashore for the space of four years. They now have oceanfront property, way away from Babel, way away from the, the problems that they had faced before. They built barges at multiple points to cross various bodies of water, which, by the way, with the vastness of the, the eastern continents, don't you think it would have been fairly simple for God to 
steer their course in such a way that they wouldn't have to build barges to cross other bodies of water before they got to the sea, uh, this makes for a lot more work for them to have to build barges at those points. But brothers and sisters, God didn't send us down to this earth to experience the easiest path possible, the most pleasure possible. He sent us down to this earth to become something, to experience things, to build relationships, to learn from our own experience, and he knows how big that ocean crossing is going to be. He knows what it's going to require of their barges to get across. Isn't it neat that God gives them opportunities before to practice, where it's not as big of a deal if they get some cuts wrong and some joints aren't quite right. They learn from their from their successes and from their failures so that in the future, when the real the, the serious need arises, they're ready to go. And I have seen this in my own life so many times I can't even I can't even tell you uh, how much as I look back, on uh, my wife and I as we contemplate our past, where we can see the hand of the Lord guiding us through things that were really hard and wondering why did we have to go through that, and now from our current perspective looking back saying, oh, how great thou art. Thanks for, for giving us the opportunity to learn those lessons along the way which have now prepared us for what we, what we have to, to do moving forward. Notice that in verse 14, it came to pass that at the end of the four years that the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared and stood in a cloud, again he's hidden, he's cloaked, and he talked with him, and for the space of three hours did the Lord talk with the brother of Jared and chastened him because he had remembered, or he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. Four years, we've, we've arrived at the ocean, we're good, we don't, we don't need any more guidance and direction. They're, we've got everything we need here, and for four years, they're just kind of going along. Have you, have you ever had a time when you didn't go and talk to the Lord because you kind of already knew what the answer was going to be, and you weren't really excited about following through on that, or on that answer? You, you had everything you wanted to do, and quite frankly, you you didn't want to mess with that comfort zone? I wonder if that could be part of what's been going on here, that Mahanrai Moriankumar, or the brother of Jared, understands that the Lord's going to want them to cross this great ocean, but they don't really want to. They're, they're content. They're happy. So, look at verse 16, and the Lord said, go to work, and build after the manner of barges which ye have hitherto built. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did go to work, and also his brethren, and built barges after the manner which they had been built, according to the instructions of the Lord. And they were small, and they were light upon the water, even like unto the lightness of a fowl upon the water. And then he does something interesting. Moroni gives you in one verse multiple usages of the words like unto a dish. They're tight like unto a dish, and the bottom thereof was tight like unto a dish, and the sides thereof were tight like unto a dish, and the ends thereof were peaked, and the top thereof was tight like unto a dish. The length of thereof was of the length of a tree, and the door thereof, when it was shut, was tight like unto a dish. 
he uses this phrase so many times here in this one verse, tight like unto a dish. I wonder if there's something for us to, to learn from that, to keep our, our faith, our covenant-keeping, our testimonies, our marriages more tight like unto a dish. I wonder if there's something for us to learn from that. Now, here's, here's part of the problem. We have these barges that are so tight like unto a dish that we've actually created three problems, and they're pretty, pretty significant problems. You're going to notice in verse 19, he, he goes to the Lord and he says, Behold, O Lord, in them there is no light. They're so tight like unto a dish, no light is getting in. Whither shall we steer? We have no rudder, we have no sails, we have no, no connecting point between the inside of the barge and the outside to be able to steer and give us direction on the water. Oh, and by the way, also we shall perish, for in them we cannot breathe. They're so tight, like unto a dish, we're going to suffocate. What would you like us to do? So notice what happens, verse 20, the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, Behold, thou shalt make a hole in the top and also in the bottom. And then he instructs him on how to unstop the, the various holes for different reasons. So check this out. He just gave him step-by-step -step instructions how to fix your breathing problem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to somebody with three fairly significant problems that I need solved, and if that person comes back and says, okay, here's how to solve one of them, my human, you know, inherent response is to say, okay, that, that's good, but I got two other problems too, what, do you, what are we going to do about those? Not the brother of Jared when dealing with the Lord. I love this principle. God isn't going to hold himself hostage to all of our demands or even all of our requests all of the time. He knows what he's doing and he gives just enough. He gives him one answer. And if the brother of Jared had sat there and said, okay, I'm going to sit here until you tell me the answer to number one and two, I don't know, but I suspect that the Lord would have simply repeated the step-by-step -step instructions for how to get air. I could be wrong. But I love the fact that the brother, brother of Jared instantaneously responded to that direction, and he went and he did it. Uh, look at verse 21, the wording. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did so, according as the Lord had commanded. Sounds a little bit reminiscent of Nephi. I will go and do the things which the Lord has commanded. He, the brother of Jared, did so according as the Lord had commanded. You'll notice he's taking these steps that God has given them without knowing what's going to happen here. This is faith. He doesn't have all the answers, but he's taking what he did get from the Lord and he's acting on it. I wonder if there's a principle there for us today as individuals, as couples, as families, that instead of waiting for God to give us 
all of the doctrinal answers, all of the historical reasons for why everything's been done the way it's been done, and all the perspective from heaven that we, that we sometimes desperately want, I wonder if there's something powerful about saying, I'm going to act on what I know I need to be doing, trusting, acting in faith and trusting that God in his own time and in his own way will reveal these further steps when it's in our best interest. Um, I think there's something there to consider. So notice, after he's followed the instructions that God gave him, look at verse 22. He cried again unto the Lord, saying, O Lord, behold, we have done even as thou hast commanded me, and I have prepared the vessels for my people, and behold, there is no light in them. Behold, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that we shall cross this great water in darkness? I don't know about you, but in that phrase right there, I sense a depth of meekness that's very real. It's almost as if the brother of Jared is saying, Lord, we thank you for fixing the problem that would have killed us, so, so now we're not going to die. I get that. But we can't really see. I mean, when it's unstopped, there would be a little bit of light coming in, but any time that we've got that, that hole uh, shut up, then we're not going to be able to see anything. Do you, do you want us to cross the great deep in darkness? Implication being, Lord, we'll do that if you require that. I like that. I like that level of meekness saying, I'm not going to make any demands. I'm simply making a request here. I would rather not cross the water in darkness. Do you have, do you have any solution for us? Look at verse 23. The Lord said unto the brother of Jared, What will ye that I should do, that ye may have light in your vessels? For behold, you cannot have windows, for they will be dashed in pieces, neither will you take fire with you, for ye shall not go by the light of fire. Notice, he just said to the brother of Jared, what do you want me to do about this? Use your agency, think, plan, design, tell me what you want me to do about your light problem. Oh, and by the way, let me just take two things off of the, the design, possible design table. Don't use windows, don't use fire. Now, now you figure it out. Often when we speak of this story, we'll speak in, in terms of God said to the brother of Jared, you figure it out, you solve the light problem, I'm giving you power to do it. That isn't what we just read. It's quite the opposite. He didn't tell the brother of Jared to solve the light problem. God is still holding himself responsible to solve the light problem. What he did was he invited the brother of Jared in to use his agency to give God the step-by-step -step instructions this time. Did you notice this? Look at the wording again. The Lord said unto the brother of Jared, what will ye that I should do that ye may have light in your vessels? Y you tell me what to do, the brother of Jared. Tell me what you prefer. So instead of God giving him the step-by-step -step instructions, in this one it's you give me the instructions, figure it out. H how do you want this to happen? Oh, and by the way, that second problem, look at verse 24. Behold, ye shall be as a whale in the midst of the sea, for the mountain waves shall dash upon you. 
Nevertheless, I will bring you up again out of the depths of the sea, for the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and the floods have I sent forth. I could be wrong, but I think this is the Lord's gentle way of saying, don't worry about that one. I, I got that one covered for you. You don't need to do anything about the steering. I'm going to get you to the promised land. Huh. There's an awful lot of grace involved in this don't worry about. I, I will completely take care of that one for you, which means we have to have a lot of trust. Now, did you notice something here? Look at this list. Use your agency, figure it out, tell me what, what you want me to do about the light problem, don't worry about it, and just do this, 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 that'll solve your problems. In a very, in a very high-level way, looking down in generalities, every question you ever ask the Lord, or every request you ever make of the Lord, could fall into one of these three categories, or a, or a variation of a combination of two or all three of them at, at different times. Either God giving you instructions of how to solve a problem, him telling you, don't worry about that one, I got that covered, or him saying, use your agency, which often will come to us in the form of silence. When we pray and we ask for an answer and no answer comes, it's almost as if God is saying to us, as he did to the brother of Jared, I trust you. Think. Study it out. Use the capacities and the experience you have. Figure something out and bring it to me, and let's go from there. Use your agency. Now, if you look at this, these three things, which one, if, if you could pick, now this is totally uh, theoretical, if you could pick one response that you always get from the Lord every time you make a request of him, which one of these would you prefer? Now let's be honest. Wouldn't life be a lot easier if every time you knelt down next to, to your bed or, or with your family or anything and made a request, God gave you that answer? Oh, don't worry about that. I got that covered. I'll do that for you. I'm taking care of that one. You don't need to worry about that one. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? Huh. What would life become like if every time you said, oh no, I'm in trouble, I need help, and you're not in trouble anymore. Oh, I need my, oh, I've got money. Oh, I've got prosperity in, in all the other aspects of life, not even related to the financial side. I've got opportunities opening up for education and career and relationships and everything just works out. And anytime anybody ever gets sick, I pray for them, and God says, don't worry, and boom, they get better. All diseases go away. What would happen to us? Brothers and sisters, we didn't come down to this earth to have an exclusive don't worry about it experience. That, that wouldn't stretch us. Now, we're going to come back to that one in a minute. What if we could have every question we ask be answered with the Lord giving us such clear inspiration that we could actually write it down. It's, the answers are dictated to us to the point where we could write them down in words. Every question, every concern, every struggle, every issue we ever face, he just gives us step-by-step -step instructions, we write them down, we follow them. Wouldn't that be great? Would it? What would happen to us over time? 
Consequently, look at the pattern. When a little baby is born, that baby has needs, the baby has concerns, and everything that baby gets is don't worry about it. Everything gets done for that baby. The baby doesn't do anything for itself. Then what happens? It gets to a certain point in its growth where instead of tying the shoes for that young child, now mom or dad or a sibling says, let me show you how to do this so that you're not, you know, going off to college and having to ask your roommates to tie your shoes for you. Let me teach you how to tie them yourself. And then in other things that are more consequential, watch what happens as that child gets old enough, they then ask, hey, mom and dad, can I go and do such and such? And there comes that point where parents start to say, hmm, that's interesting. What do you think? What is the right thing to do? You decide, and then come let me know what you've decided to do. And often we as human beings love that, but at the same time we hate that. Uh, we're confident that there are many of you who are watching this thinking to yourself, I just want to know what God wants me to do, and I've pled, I've fasted, I've prayed, I've gone to the temple, I've counseled with, with loved ones and leaders, and I don't have a clear answer, and I will do whatever God wants me to do, I just don't know what it is, and so we sit there waiting for him to give us an answer. I don't think I'm the only one who struggled with this. I think there are many of us who say, just tell me what to do. I, I don't know what decision to make here, and yet God keeps giving us silence, allowing us this opportunity to move forward with our agency and to decide what to do, and then take that to him and say, is, is this okay that I do it this way? Uh, brothers and sisters, this is not a, a spiritual measuring stick on your maturity. In fact, all it is is an example of God, your heavenly parents working with children on the earth as they grow through various phases of their spiritual maturity and development. In the beginning phases, most things are don't worry, then some step-by-step -step instructions you get some very specific, do this, don't do this, do it this way, don't do it there and don't do it then. But then as you mature, now you have more agency, which isn't to imply that these are lesser answers. In fact, they're treasured answers. In fact, all that's happening is God now has a full array of combinations of answers that, that can be used that would best fit for your spiritual progression and development at that time, in that instance. Let me show you what I mean. There are some of you who are watching this who the most uh, difficult answer you could get from the Lord at certain times is the don't worry about it answer, because you're a go-getter, you're a doer, you, you like to, to get things done, and when God says, don't worry about that, that's a bigger trial of your faith than if he were to give you step-by-step -step instructions or tell you, you figure it out, because that's a comfort zone for you. Sometimes God will give the don't worry about it answer to people 
to stretch their faith, to get them to trust him even more than ever they have in the past, and it's beautiful. And sometimes when people like to do things their own way, he'll give them step-by-step instruction kinds of answers to try their faith, and those who who um, at different times are struggling to figure out which path to take or what, what choice to make, he'll consistently give you that, what would you like me to do about that answer, because he wants to stretch you. It would be so much easier if he just gave you the instructions and told you which path to take, but that's not the point. The point is to help you learn more about God and more about yourself and more about your loved ones in the process of using your agency. Now, I love the fact that here the brother of Jared didn't say to himself, rubbing his chin thinking, hmm, what should we have him do about the light problem? I got it. And then he just reaches down and picks up 16 rocks off of the ground and set them up on a little stone platform and say, there, Okay, touch those with your finger. I love the fact that the brother of Jared went to incredible effort before he came and made his request to the Lord. Look at chapter 3. He went in verse 1 to a mount which was called Shalem because of its exceeding height, so the first thing he does is he climbs a high mountain. This, this mountain is going to take great effort for him to get to the top of. Then he has to find the right kind of ore, and he moltens out of a rock 16 small stones. Curious how many of you have ever taken raw ore or rock and melted it down to the point where it's molten ore, where you, where you can do things with it. This isn't your typical campfire. This, this has to be incredibly hot with some pretty intense uh, uh, flames and a lot of work going into this to then create the molten rock, and then from there he creates 16 white, clear, transparent glass stones that he can then carry up. He's getting rid of as many of the impurities as he can to get these 16 smooth, transparent stones. Notice once he gets up to the top of the mountain again in front of the Lord, you might mark in verse 2 through 5 how many times he uses the phrase, O Lord, this pleading, this humble and meek uh, prophet of God saying, O Lord, thou hast said that we must be encompassed about by the floods. Now behold, O Lord, do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee, for we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens, and that we are unworthy before thee. Can you, can you sense the, the humility? God told him, you tell me what to do, and even though God had given him that green light, he is being so humble and meek and cautious in his request. He's not making a demand here. He's still going to the Lord in full humility, saying, I recognize who I am. I recognize my imperfections and my weakness. I know somewhat of thy perfections and of thy infinite power. Please be patient with me. I did the best that I could. Now here's the grand irony. The very finest work that the brother of Jared could do 
was to produce 16 small, smooth, transparent stones that are sitting on a on some surface in front of him at the top of this mountain. None of them are shining. None of them are giving off any light of any kind. This is the best I can do. It's not glowing. It's not, it's not going to light any barge. Lord, I've, I've done the best I can do. Now notice his request for the Lord to touch them with his fingers so that they'll shine. Look at verse 5. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power which looks small unto the, unto the understanding of men. I love something that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland shared in his great book that he wrote about the Book of Mormon. He said here, referring to this verse 5, here we have this childlike encouragement for one who needs none. But oh, what, a, what a, an incredible expression of faith. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. That's a phrase we use when we're teaching children to ride a bike or to walk or to do something hard for the first time. You can do it. You can do it. Childlike encouragement. And now you have the brother of Jared using this phrase with God, not in a childish voice, but in a faith-filled voice. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. What an expression of faith. And uh, you'll notice now that the Lord's finger does actually come and touch the stones. Now let's put that story on pause for a minute. Uh, I want to I tie this together first before we proceed with the story. When, when God gives you silence to a request, which uh, for some people, if not many, it seems like that answer of silence becomes the preferred answer the older we get. Then these become even more sweet when they actually come because we're, we're getting these opportunities to, to learn and grow and experience life by using our agency. Here's the amazing thing. God doesn't ask you to use your agency so here's a typical path of life, so to speak, as we're going from level to level and plateau to plateau and steep climb to steep climb, so on and so forth. God doesn't take a person who's here and say, now I need you to get here, use your agency, figure it out. That's not what he's doing. He usually finds us where we are and then he stretches us to the next level that's doable. With, with his answers and his combination of answers. Our heavenly parents know what they're doing when it comes to the combination that they use of all of these various types of answers to our requests. They know where we are. They know who we have the capacity to become. They know what the next step in our journey of progression and spiritual maturity is, and they know perfectly how to respond. Now, some people say, I just don't feel like God's hearing my prayers because I'm not feeling anything and I'm not hearing anything. Uh, that's a beautiful opportunity for us to take the perspective of God saying, I trust you. Use your agency. I'm trying to stretch you to your next level. 
and you're not going to get there, apparently, by me telling you what to do or me doing it for you. So keep working at it. Figure it out. I won't ever let you get too far astray if you happen to choose the wrong path. Uh, I know what I'm doing is, is kind of the implication coming to us from heaven, and it's our job now to trust and move forward, especially if it's been weeks, months, years, even decades wrestling with a particular problem that he isn't solving for us and isn't telling us how to solve. Maybe it's time for us to get up, climb exceedingly high mountains, and start looking for ore. And I don't know what that represents in your life, but there are always mountains to climb when it comes to us overcoming our struggles. We just need to figure out where those mountains are and where that ore is hiding and go get it. So let's pick up the story now. We have those 16 smooth, transparent stones sitting in front of us that are not shining in any way, shape, or form, and yet they're the best effort from the brother of Jared. Look at verse 6. It came to pass that when the brother of Jared had said these words, Behold, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger, and the veil was taken off from the eyes of the brother of Jared, and he saw the finger of the Lord, and it was as the finger of a man like unto flesh and blood, and the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, for he was struck with fear." Look at verse 13, when he had said these words, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him and said, because thou knowest these things, ye are redeemed from the fall, therefore you brought back into my presence, therefore I show myself unto you. Now look closely at 14. Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Now here's the key part. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally, even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall, notice the word here, circle it, become my sons and my daughters. You'll notice he has the title of the Father and the Son, he is already the Son, but he becomes our Father. We become his sons and daughters through the covenant connection that we make with him. Um, must have cross-reference in the, in the margin there next to verse 14 is Mosiah, Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, where King Benjamin talks about how we become the children of Christ through the covenant that we make with him. Now notice verse 15, never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created, for never has man believed in me as thou hast. There have been a lot of talks given and articles written on this particular verse, this statement, never have I showed myself unto man, because we know that before the brother of Jared we have Noah and Enoch and, and Adam, and they've, they've all seen God, but he says, never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created. So it implies that there's something different about the brother of Jared's experience, and there are a lot of reasons. I'm just going to mention a few of them here. This is not an exhaustive list. One of them is, look how he introduced himself in 14, I am Jesus Christ. Possible that previous to this, all of his other introductions has been to, to people have been as Jehovah or Yahweh in the, the Hebrew context, his name 
in the Old Testament, not as Jesus Christ directly. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is, is that the brother of Jared has such faith that it's as if the veil could not hold him back. So maybe it's God having revealed himself to others differently than the brother of Jared with his level of faith. He, he says, never has man believed in me as thou hast. So he's drawing attention to that distinction. You have more faith than anybody I've ever had in front of me before. That's pretty remarkable. And then he tells him, look, can you see that you're created after mine own image? Look at verse 16, behold, this body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit, and man have I created after the body of my spirit, even as I appear to be or unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. It's as if he's saying, you're looking at my spirit body, the body of my spirit, and the way you're seeing me is how people are going to see me when I'm walking the streets of Galilee and Jerusalem, as I'm going to appear to people in the flesh. Uh, so perhaps he's never revealed himself unto mankind before in this form, but only ever in the resplendent uh, spirit, uh, godly form of the great Jehovah of the Old Testament, and there are other options as well. The point is, verse 17, now as I, Moroni, said I could not make a full account of these things which are written, therefore it sufficeth me to say that Jesus showed himself unto this man in the Spirit, even after the manner and in the likeness of the same body, even as he showed himself unto the Nephites. So now you get the resurrected body implied, because that's what got shown to the Nephites after. So you've got all these different layers of possibilities to piece together. So he ministers unto this man, and uh, verse 19, because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. So he's rent that veil, that cloud that had, had enshrouded God in the first two chapters, it's now gone, and he sees things because he's acted in faith, he's moved forward on his covenant path that God has given him, and it's beautiful. Now, as you turn over, look at verse 22. Now behold, when ye shall come unto me, ye shall write them these things. He shows the brother of Jared a vision. We call these panoptic visions, a view of all things from past, present, and future. And he tells him that you're going to write these things and seal them up that no one can interpret them, for ye shall write them in a language that they cannot be read. So we get a sense of the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon plates beginning here. Look at verse 23, behold, these two stones will I give unto thee, and ye shall seal them up also with the things which ye shall write. So God gives him some interpreters, some stones through which the light can be brought to pass, that we can translate these records that, that the brother of Jared's going to write. And then in chapter 4, Moroni is given the command to take those things written by the brother of Jared, he's been given those Nephite interpreters now, or the, the Jaredite interpreters, to be able to read those records, write them, and then he's commanded in chapter 4 to seal them up. Look at verse 5, wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to write them, and I have written them. And he commanded me that I should seal them up, and he has also commanded me, or commanded that I should seal up the interpretation thereof, wherefore I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. So we get an idea of at least something 
a major portion of, of some things that are going to be on the sealed portion of the plates to be translated someday when the Lord sees fit that they come forth. Now to finish, go to chapter 5. This is that chapter that I told you before could be labeled, Dear Joseph Smith, Love Moroni. <laughs> it's written directly to him, and he's going to talk about that sealed portion right at the beginning. Notice he says, I've written these things according to my memory and I've sealed them up. Touch them not in order that you may translate. Joseph, that's not your job. Don't, don't break the seal for that thing is forbidden you, except by and by it shall be wisdom in God." Now, in antiquity, <clears throat> it's not the same as today, where you can have electronic communication across the globe in a nanosecond. In antiquity, if you have a binding document or a, a binding law or something that's really, really important that's written by a king, or somebody in some kind of authority, and he needs to send it to somebody else at a far distance. Because of the threat of forgeries, because of the threat of having people pretend to represent you and then having bad things happen, they would take, for instance, you could take a scroll, once you roll it up all the way, then at the end, you now have this scroll like this, and there you go. You could, in medieval times and, and in antiquity, they could dump wax, for instance, here along the edge, and then seal it with the mark of the king or the lord or the leader, whoever it may be, and that's with paper and with papyrus and with vellum scrolls, you can do similar things with metal where you, you fold it, melt it down, and then imprint it with a seal. You can seal records and uh, make it so that once that seal's broken, somebody can then know, oh, it might have been tampered with. But as long as the seal is good and it's got the right uh, marking on it, that's step one. Step two is, people can fake the marking and the seal. So step two is send witnesses to deliver the record, the law, the, the binding document, whatever it may be. So you've got people, preferably two, if possible three, who watch the king make the record, seal it with his ring, and then you deliver it, because now you have two at least, preferably three, who can say to the receiving party, that was written by the king, or by the order of the king, sealed by his hand, legally binding on you. You have our word on it. Well, what do you do if you're Moroni, and you're the last guy in your culture, in your nation, who's living as a, as a uh, socio-political group, the Nephites. He's, he's the last one of that, of that group. Here's what you do, verse 3, unto three shall they be shown by the power of God, wherefore they shall know of a surety that these things are true. There are going to be three who get a sure witness, they are true testifiers that this is a, a true record. Look at verse 4, 
and in the mouth of three witnesses shall these things be established, and the testimony of three, and this work in the which shall be shown forth the power of God and also his word. It's here where Joseph gets this idea of, I get to show the record, the, the, these plates, to three special witnesses who can join with my testimony that this is an authentic book, an authentic record from antiquity, and they're going to be able to bear testimony to the world that it is true and it's legally binding on all of us from God. It's kind of neat. Well, Moroni doesn't end there. Moroni takes it one step further. I love this. Look what he did. He calls – he basically is saying to Joseph, you're now authorized to get three witnesses, and we know those to be uh, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. But then look at what he does with his own three witnesses, and also his word, of which the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost bear record, and this shall stand as a testimony against the world at the last day. Moroni basically looking around saying, I got nobody to deliver this record to you. Joseph, you're going to be able to get three witnesses. God's going to reveal things to them. They're going to stand as witnesses, but I'm calling on my three witnesses as I deliver up these plates that this is an authentic, real record, and my three witnesses are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's true. And if you doubt me, can you picture Moroni saying this? Verse uh, 5, and if it so be that they repent and come unto the Father in the name of Jesus, they shall be received into the kingdom of heaven. And now, if I have no authority for these things, judge ye, for ye shall know that I have authority when ye shall see me, and we shall stand before God at the last day. Amen. I love that. How many books of Scripture, or any book for that matter, do you have where a real person reaches up from the page, grabs you by the shirt front, pulls you in, looks you in the eye, and says, you're accountable for this. I'm bearing witness. I've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You've got other witnesses from the earth, and we're going to stand at the last day. I'm going to look at you. You're going to know that I had authority for these things. I love that. I love Moroni reaching down through the quarter of time and grabbing me, saying, Tyler, this book is true. There are so many people in, in the history of this story who put their life, infused their, their life and their teachings, consecrated efforts into you getting this record. Why is it so important that we know this is true? Because it helps us figure out how to break through the, the mists of darkness and those clouds and those struggles that seem to separate us from the presence of God or to make it so that he's cloaked or veiled, so that we can slowly, line upon line, precept upon precept, work our way through life to come unto him and come to know him as our Savior and our Redeemer, the one who was sent to bring us home to the arms of our loving heavenly parents. I know he lives. I know he loves you. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.